This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, all, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. So we normally do have our weekly orthopedic surgery topics, but this is a little bit of a different series, and this is actually our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, and we are on some spines, so if this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome to the podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. We appreciate you t- checking out our content, and I mean, without further ado, let's just go ahead and hop into today's episode. Enough of enough of me talking. Let's listen to both me and Dr. Wilmot talk. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And um, what's the most sensitive and specific finding of a patient with a lumbar disc herniation? Yeah, so this is going to be that sciatica or, you know, kind of that radiating pain that goes down the leg. So that's going to be the most sensitive and specific finding for a lumbar disc herniation. And uh, since we're getting into the lumbar disc herniation universe, uh, what are some of the different types of lumbar disc herniation? And I, I don't know why it took me, like when I was an intern, just hearing this, I just just like flew way over my head so for some reason but uh what are what are some of the different types of lumbar disc herniations yeah it's all described on where the uh disc herniates and so uh if you're looking the the easiest way to conceptualize this is picture or uh if you're sitting at a computer right now google a axial image of the lumbar spine uh, on CT or MRI, and uh, you're looking at the at where the disc protrudes or herniates. And if it's central, it's going to be central into the uh, spinal canal. So it's going to affect more central structures. And um, if it's a large uh, herniation, it can cause possible cauda equina. Uh, symptoms in certain situations, uh, mostly with uh, high energy trauma. Um, Then you can have paracentral. So instead of being directly uh, posterior into the spinal canal, if it's a little bit off to the right or left, kind of in the uh, five o'clock and seven o'clock distributions, if you're looking at it like a, a clock face, and so these are, po- these are paracentral. These are the m- more common types of herniations um, just because uh, the posterior longitudinal ligament of the spine protects a lot of these central herniations from going into the uh, spinal canal. They will kind of pooch out to the side of this posterior longitudinal ligament 
and go into the paracentral recess um, and where it, uh, you'll get tested on and tripped up, hopefully not tripped up if you listen to this, but tested on is that these paracentral uh, herniations will affect the traversing nerve roots. So if you have, let's say you're at the L4-5 level and you have a left-sided paracentral uh, disc herniation, a the L5 nerve root will be affected because it's the one that is traversing past the L4-5 uh, vertebral disc space and is going to exit more inferior. But if you have a foraminal or far lateral uh, uh, disc herniation, that's going to go into the actual foramina itself or lateral to the foramina when the nerve root has already exited. And this is going to affect the exiting nerve root. So again, we're going to stay at L4-5. If you have a foraminal or far lateral herniation at L4-5, the L4 nerve root is going to be affected because that's the nerve root that exits through the L4-5 uh, foramina. Um, again, paracentral is traversing nerve root. Far lateral is exiting nerve root. And uh, what sort of symptoms do patients with a lumbar disc herniation present with? Yeah, so these patients... They'll come and they'll present, you know, they'll say they have some back pain. Um, but one of the kind of the key, one of the key buzzwords is they have leg pain that is worse with sitting and that can be relieved by standing. And this goes into like a whole, um, it's like a whole uh, topic about it in, in, the, in a different lumbar pressures. But I don't know if you just think about it in my head, like if you sit forward, the disc may go back a little bit or more posteriorly towards the spinal elements and, and cause some of that pain. So again, uh, lumbar disc herniations are going to have back pain and leg pain that's worse with sitting that can be relieved by standing and also have pain and numbness in a dermatomal fashion, depending on what nerve root is being affected. Now, um, what is the, what imaging I guess should be obtained in a patient uh, that has a possible lumbar disc herniation? And we kind of mentioned some of this a little bit earlier, but I think it's just for completeness sake. Yeah. So you're going to start off with your x-rays. Um, uh, AP lateral and even that uh, kind of oblique lateral where you're looking for the classic like Scotty dog sign of the uh, pars inner articularis, um, but also uh, flexion and extension views to look for any instability such as uh, spondylolisthesis. So um, if a patient is flexing forward and you see uh, like L4 slide forward on L5, uh, that's an unstable spine because then when they go back into extension, that L4 or that L4 vertebral body may sit more natural on L5. And so that's a that's an unstable spine. And that's going to be somebody that you're going to want to operate on because of their gross instability. Uh, but then uh, you also can get uh, MRI. Uh, <laughs> false positives are common. Um, just like you said before, there's a large portion of the population above the age of 50 that has asymptomatic herniations. And uh, it's kind of which, what came first? Did the back pain come before your herniation or was the herniation always there for a number of years? And now you're having low back pain. So that's where you have to focus on your clinical exam. And um, if you had a patient who 
had a herniation and they had surgery or they had a herniation, they got better. And then a couple years later, um, it's recurrent. That's when you're going to get the one with contrast because the contrast is going to go into the areas of active uh, disease uh, rather than like a burnt out disc herniation that's been uh, constant for the last couple of years. Um, and then what's the treatment for acute uh, her disc herniation? Again, non-op, yeah. non-op, non-op. <laughs> unless something's like very bad, unless they have like per, uh, progressive neurological symptoms or irretractable pain, like, you know, they're saying, oh, doc, it was just um, numbness and tingling. I was going down my leg. Now I really can't lift my ankle up or I can't dorsiflex my ankle. You know, progressive neurological symptoms, that'd be a reason to operate. But most of the times you're treating this non-operatively. And again, it's going to be NSAIDs, physical therapy. Another thing you can do is a epidural steroid injection. So say, for example, your first uh, treatment may be, you know, NSAIDs, therapy, um, some some uh, physicians do an, uh, uh, steroid dose packs of oral steroids and some muscle relaxants and they come back and they're still having some issues and pain. You can go back and say, OK, well, we can try to set you up for epidural steroid injection where your where your disc herniation is. So if it's paracentral, you, you know, they'll try to get a, an injection over there. So, again, you want to exhaust all your non-operative options first, which, again, will be NSAIDs, physical therapy. Uh, epidural steroid injections, other options include oral steroids and muscle relaxants. Now, what are some surgical indications for patients that have a lumbar disc herniation? Uh, you briefly went over those, but uh, just to hammer it home, uh, progressive neurological deficit, I think, is what's going to be the most commonly tested uh, reason. It, it may not be the most common reason that you see in practice, um, but on a test question, it's very, it's a very easy test question to write. They'll tell you, hey, this patient had symptoms. Uh, you saw him six weeks ago. Now they have this symptom. What do you want to do? And it's going to be surgery. So it's just, a, it's an easier test question to write if they don't have improvement with non-operative treatment or they have progressive neurological deficits. Um, for those of you unlucky enough in residency to have to take spine call uh, <laughs> in, uh, at, at, in Fresno. So um, that was a huge bonus, but uh, Cotty. Yeah, we didn't Quine, either. Or we don't. Cotty Equine is another uh, uh, reason, obviously, that you're going to take these patients to surgery because you don't want them to have uh, saddle anesthesia and uh, absence of sensation to their perineum and uh, decreased sex function and all of that stuff that comes along with uh, cauda equina syndrome. So um, those are the things that you're going to look for. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org.
let's say now you, you have a patient, you're treating them surgically. What are some of the options um, for patients with disc herniation? Yeah, so one may be a partial disectomy or a micro disectomy, and, and there are different ways to do this. It can be done through an open approach, a limited open approach, or a microscope, microscope assisted uh, approach. You know, you kind of go on with a little dilator and you look, um, and then you remove the disc that way. Uh, but all of these have similar outcomes. So one is, you know, a partial disectomy. Um, a hemilaminectomy where you remove just a part of the lamina and then you go and remove the herniated disc is very common. Um, so again, that's going to be a hemilaminectomy with a disectomy, uh, a total laminectomy. This may, this is, um, may be needed or may be done for patients that have large central herniations, uh, for what you were talking about earlier. Again, so when you're looking at an MRI and an axial cut, you look to see where the disc is being herniated, the location is the central, paracentral, or is it far lateral? And so we talked about partial disectomies. We talked about a hemilaminectomy, where you just remove a little piece of the bone uh, and then you do a disectomy. We talked about a total, total laminectomy that may be needed for a large central herniation. And then for the far lateral herniations, you may use a different approach and you may do a paramedial or muscle splitting wilts uh, approach. I think that was a question one time I was doing it and they just showed a far lateral disc herniation and they asked, how would you treat it? And those were the options like parcel disectomy or doing like a paramedial uh, muscle splitting approach. And that was the answer because it was a, it was a, uh, a far lateral herniation. Um, and, you know, so we just talked about all these different you know, ectomies and uh, disectomies, uh, is a lumbar fusion typically needed uh, or is it typically required for treatment of a lumbar disc herniation? Uh, it is not uh, typically required for uh, herniation itself, um, but this is why you're using kind of all the information given to you to depend on if a fusion will be useful for that patient. So, um, if they have uh, facet joint edema on an MRI, that can indicate instability. And that is something that you wanna consider that if you just do a partial discectomy uh, on the patient with instability, they're probably going to be a recurrent uh, herniator. And one way you can kind of stop that process is by taking the disc out, but also fusing them because you're assuming that they have instability in that area. Um, if they have gross instability on your flexion extension x-rays, if you see a, a spondylolisthesis uh, developed, then that's somebody who you're going to want to also fuse because they will be either a recurrent dislocator or be a persistent back pain. Um, and then uh, unfortunately, uh, there are times when, uh, there's an iatrogenic instability where either you or a colleague out in the local area had operated on a patient. And unfortunately they, uh, along with their, uh, hemilaminectomy with discectomy, they also took, uh, 50% of the bilateral facets or, 100% of a unilateral facet because they didn't have great visualization, um, or if they took out uh, the pars interarticularis, um, that can that can lead to iatrogenic instability. And 
if a patient has that, then you're going to have to be ready to fuse them as well. So uh, the the risk with a patient with instability, like I said, is a re-herniation uh, and recurrent pain. So uh, you don't have to fuse all of them, but there are select few patients where a fusion will, will help the patient out and help you out uh, in the long run without having to do a revision surgery. Um, so we've talked a lot about disc herniations itself. Um, and disc herniations can, but not always, cause something called uh, uh, lumbar spinal stenosis. What is that? Yeah, so general definition is this is just when you have a decrease in the space that's going to be available for the neural elements. Uh, and, and again, this can be not only decreased space in the spinal canal, but decreased space in the neural foramina where the, where the nerve was actually exit. So um, that is what lumbar stenosis is. And it can be due to many things. It can be congenital um, or it can be an acquired lumbar stenosis. And when it's an acquired stenosis, this can be due to, uh, to just degenerative um, causes. It can be due to systemic causes. Um, so it can be due, due to uh, many other things, or it can be due to both. It can be congenital and acquired lumbar stenosis. And one thing to note is that when you have um, lumbar spine extension, it decreases the amount of space in your spinal canal. So just know that, I guess, for general, and then it'll make sense when we talk about a couple of things here in a bit. Uh, but what is the classification for uh, lumbar spinal stenosis? The... Uh, classification for it is uh, kind of a location of where it's coming from. So uh, you can have central stenosis, you can have lateral recess uh, or subarticular stenosis, and then foraminal uh, stenosis. And uh, these are uh, really just kind of locations. You probably won't be tested a lot. Uh, on exactly like, hey, can you classify this uh, itself as a, as a test question, but it's good to understand um, uh, exactly uh, kind of what the scheme is for classifying it and, and why we talk about it in such a way as, is it central, lateral recess, or foraminal? And so, um, Although they can cross over, what are some of the symptoms seen in lumbar spine stenosis? Yeah, and, and I'm going to answer that question here in a second, but I wanted to just quickly, I was just going to read out um, the, the regions of the spinal canal because I felt like it was too much to write and, and put in this book. You can kind of look, you know, if you're interested, you can look it up a little bit uh, on your own. But uh, the central canal uh, is going to be defined as a space that's going to be posterior to the posterior longitudinal ligament anterior to the ligamentum flavum and laminae, and it's going to be bordered laterally by the medial border of the superior articular process. So that is the central canal. The lateral recess portion is going to be defined by the superior articular facet posteriorly, the thecal sac medially, the pedicle laterally, and the posterior, uh, posterior lateral vertebral body anteriorly. So that is going to be the lateral recess area, and then the intervertebral foramen, and that is going to be bordered superiorly and inferiorly by the pedicles or by those adjacent level pedicles, posteriorly by the facet joint and lateral extensions of the ligament and flavum, and anteriorly by the adjacent vertebral bodies in the disc. 
Um, so just know that's kind of those areas that we're, uh, that we're talking about with lumbar um, spinal stenosis. And to answer your question, what are some of the symptoms seen in lumbar spinal stenosis? These patients can have back pain. Um, they can have leg pain with paresthesias or heaviness um, that can be worse with walking, especially walking down hills. And you think about it, you walk down hills and when you're walking downhill, you kind of lean back a little. And so you lean back, that's lumbar extension and that decreases the amount of space for the spinal cord, which is, which makes sense why it does, uh, why it would make the symptoms a little bit worse. And this pain is going to be relieved with sitting uh, or kind of that, that shopping cart sign when they lean forward, because it's relieving a little bit of that or giving the spinal cord a little bit of, um, a little bit of room. And another thing to note is that with lumbar spinal stenosis, the pain is relieved with sitting versus stopping walking. Uh, and the thing that you need to know is that vascular claudication is another thing in a differential diagnosis. And that can clue you in towards the pain is relieved with sitting, that can clue you in towards neurogenic or lumbar spinal stenosis versus when they stop walking, uh, the, the pain decreases. That's going to be vascular claudication. Another thing to distinguish the two is in lumbar spinal stenosis, your leg symptoms start proximally and then tend to go distally versus with vascular claudication, the leg symptoms tend to start distally more towards the toes and then come up proximally. And then patients can also get pseudoclaudication when they have central stenosis. Uh, and we just kind of talked about that area of the, where that central portion of the canal is. And then if you have foraminal stenosis or lateral recess stenosis, you can have radicular symptoms, which makes sense, right? Because we know that uh, the nerves go through the foramen. If, there are less, uh, if there's less room in the foramen for the nerve root and this, uh, that area gets stenosed, you can have radicular symptoms or that radiating symptoms that go down the leg. So those are all the things you can find just from when the patients talk to you. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. If you have not already, please hit that subscribe button. And if you have not already, please go and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. You can search Nailed It Ortho and we will pop up. All right. Until next episode.